Welcome to the Product Quest Podcast. Thanks for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Scott Burleson, and joining me as always, my co-hosts Jan Vermouth and Jonathan Edwards. Today, we welcome our very special guest, Michelle Hansen. Michelle is the co-founder of the software-as-a-service company, Geocodio, along with her husband, Matthias. Prior to being an entrepreneur, Michelle was a product manager in financial publishing and a project manager for a web development agency. She's a co-host of the Software Social Podcast, a weekly conversation between two SaaS founders, self-described as one starting out and one who's established. Michelle is the author of an excellent book on customer interviewing, Deploy Empathy, which we are certain to get into today. Michelle Hansen, welcome to the Product Quest Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. I'm really excited to be here. Of course, we're going to get into deploy empathy and all that fun stuff. But first, I'd like to begin with the fact that you live on a farm in the Danish countryside. That sounds so amazing. Tell us a little bit about <laughs> that farm and how that came to be. Yeah, I mean, we kind of, you know, describe it as sort of a quote unquote farm because we don't have any animals. Um, but we so we mostly have a lot of different kinds of fruits. Um, and I was talking to someone about it the other day and I was like, well, if we got, you know, 50 kilos of raspberries, 50 kilos of strawberries last year, like plus apples, figs, pears, plums, uh, currants, more stuff. I can't even remember. I was like, maybe we could call it like a fruit, a fruit farm and we don't sell it. We just kind of give it away or if neighbors show up, we're like, please pick some strawberries, please. And take whatever you pick. Um, but yeah, it's a, my husband is originally from here. We lived um, in the U.S. together um, in Virginia for uh, about 10 years. Um, and then COVID happened and he's originally from here. And we're like, you know what, maybe we should just like go to Denmark for a year and just, you know, schools are open versus they weren't they weren't uh, where we lived. Um, and then once we got here, we uh, just just loved it and decided to stay. Yeah, that's, 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 it just sounds so amazing. We've loved, or personally, I've loved keeping up with the, um, the progress of the shed quarters, as you call it. <laughs> yes, recording from there today. Oh, yeah. So the farm life, how has it affected or impacted your professional life anyway? What have you learned from being a fruit farmer there in Denmark? <laughs> <laughs> Again, I, you know, fruit farmers sort of in quotes here, but, yeah. um, you know, it, it, it's funny, like, uh, you know, my husband will say, oh, you know, it's like having a code problem. I'm just going to go tractoring for a while. Like we, mm. um, you know, it's, uh, we, we watched, uh, I don't know if you've seen Jeremy Clarkson's show, Clarkson's farm, um, highly relatable for us. Like we had an incident, you know, a year and a half ago when our tractor got stuck in the field and snowstorm and, you know, there, there, there's a lot of, you know, two people uh, move to the country from the city and much hilarity ensues going on. Right. Um, but, you know, it's also it's like really nice. Right. Like, you know, at the end of the workday in the, the summer and the fall, like I can just, you know, go like, you know, pick a couple of kilos of raspberries and it just like just kind of clears my head and just, you know, it gets me outside. Like I found, you know, working for ourselves from home, it like there were days when, you know, I only went outside for maybe 20 minutes total to walk the dog or, you know, take our daughter's school or, and back, which is in the car. So, um, being here, um, you know, I can go out and do something in the garden. I can go jump on our trampoline, right? Like there's just, there's, there's other stuff to, to do and, um, to, I guess, literally ground me, uh, where of course we're quite a bit busier, um, <laughs> with maintaining everything, but uh, we 
you know, we, we also enjoy that. Like it's also, it's, it can be satisfying to go mulch a bunch of trees after a long day. So, well, especially, but I'm, you go ahead, Jan. Sorry, I'm, I'm following you on Twitter. So I kind of, so I, I kind of, you always give up. To, so it's not just maintain, but you're also kind of, you build more or less the whole place or is that wrong? Yeah. I mean, there was a house and um, three barns here when we moved in. Um, okay. We actually ended up tearing down one, it was the old hen house. Uh, we wanted to make that into an office when we bought the property. And then we had an architect and a contractor look at it and they were like, ah. um, so we ended up tearing it down and building this shed um, as our office. Um, and yeah, I mean, well, you know, we're making some changes to the house too, but you know, this, this, this farm has been here for, uh, I want to say at least 150 years, like our barns, oh, wow. like are over a hundred years old easily. But it's but but for a Danish farm that's pretty new, like, <laughs> yeah. I would think so. They, that has to be a nice counter, you know. I mean, so much of our professional lives is in front of screens, and I'm assuming yours is th is that way a lot. So that's got to be yeah. a nice counterbalance to get outside and get some vitamin D, and you can get vitamin C from your fruit, and just to do something physical. I, I think that's that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about customer interviewing. Um, how did Michelle learn initially this art of customer interviewing? So I learned it when I was a product manager. Um, I think it's part of why it's become something that's so important to me is because it was just revelatory for me as a product manager. I went from looking at data and numbers and, you know, trying basically making very educated, uh, formula driven decisions about how to improve KPIs and then those things we did not working and feeling frustrated and doing that over and over again um, to then when I was fortunate enough to be working with several, um, you know, experienced designers and researchers who, who, who really brought that practice um, into our team, uh, both with usability testing and with exploratory uh, customer interviews. And that just unlocked so much learning uh, for us. And it, it made me feel so much more connected to the product and to the customers as well. It also helped with our team, um, you know, because bringing, you know, our developers into a usability session, like when we later, you know, put an item on the board to, um, you know, move the location of a button or add something, there's no conversation about, well, why do we need to do that in the first place? And why is that more important than this? Like they had seen it in the usability session that people couldn't find people wouldn't find it. People couldn't use the thing that they had built. And, and so it just improved our team velocity. It improved my decision-making as a product manager. Um, and then when I went full-time on Geocodio, um, I really got the opportunity to start talking to our customers more deeply and, and, and it both, um, you know, shapes our strategic direction, our, our roadmap. Um, but it also is just, it makes me really enjoy my job because I get to hear about how we're helping people and why they're using us and what they used before and how that was annoying and how it's not a problem for them anymore. And they're usually so grateful that we exist in the first place. And, um, you know, on, on, on the longest days that that's a helpful thing to be able to, um, call back to and, and have that kind of, I think a little bit of a personal connection um, with the people you're making something for. 
Um, and, but if, if you're not from a UX background, um, it's unlikely that you learned how to do interviews. Um, and, and I found myself talking to a lot of other founders about product strategy and, uh, you know, we, we invested in a couple of funds for other small independent software companies. Um, and, and so, you know, I would start, you know, mentoring those founders and talking about customer interviews and just, um, you know, I felt like I didn't really have one solid, rigorous, approachable place to send them. Um, but that's, so that's kind of how I got into customer interviews and how I started writing a book about it, which you didn't ask, but I answered anyway. We're going to get, we're <laughs> definitely getting to that, but it sounds like, um, there wasn't like a, did you, did you go through any training or was it really just all learned by doing getting It's You definitely had some mentors. It sounded like. Yeah. I didn't ever go to like a training per se, but I, you know, I read a lot of books, you know, and, and articles. So Clayton Christensen, Tony Ulwick, Bob Muesta. Um, I think I also read, um, uh, when coffee and kale compete as well, uh, intercom on jobs to be done. Actually that came out a couple of years after I learned how to do it, but I do like that book. Um, and then, yeah, just, just, you know, observing people who are doing it, you know, I, I probably was just an observer in the room for the first yeah. couple of months, wasn't actually running the sessions myself until I graduated into being sort of the, um, the number two person who was, who was helping out in the interview, um, until I was eventually the one leading them myself, but that probably took about six months or so, um, working with people who, who were, um, very experienced and, um, just so yeah. grateful for that experience, quite frankly. That's exactly the way how I, I learned. I don't have any kind of like really, I don't have a paper or formal training on this, but I spent a lot of time watching people that I know are really good at this mm-hmm. and then you kind of follow them. And then at one point it's like learning to swim, right? At one point you have to jump in the water and just, and just try it for yourself. And then you kind of more or less, if you're a person that is really interested in improving, you will improve. I think. So Jan, if somebody had read a book on swimming and hadn't tried it yet, you, you would, <laughs> you, you, you think they should still use a life jacket, I assume. Well, a little bit of a life jacket is always good. <laughs> Floaties. Floaties. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Which I think is kind of the equivalent of, you know, using uh, an off-the-shelf script, right? Like yeah. maybe you can't come yeah. up with your own script or you have a bank of follow-up phrases that you can yeah. use when they say something, right? Like you're you're not going in entirely, you know, in just a swimsuit, I guess we're continuing this analogy, but like, you know, they, they've got a, they've got a kickboard and some floaties, right? Like they're not going to drown. They've got some things to, to fall back on. I yeah. love that. And you, hey, go ahead, and you can do interviews, you can do interviews. Um, I mean, that, at least not in the first time, but after, after a couple of times we did interviews as, so you have kind of two interviewees. Mm-hmm. I mean, back then we Interviewers? did actual physical, um, well, a physical room and we were three people. So two that kind of interviewed and one interview, uh, sorry, yeah, one interviewee and two interviewers. And you just kind of have a bad, so you know somebody is sitting beside you or in the corner and if things go wrong, they can just quickly jump in. And that worked pretty well in the beginning. So kind of like a, maybe that's kind of flowy or, 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 or somebody you can fall back on to is also really nice. If you have to, of course, to, if you have somebody like that in your in your um, environment. So I don't yeah, know, I but probably- yeah. Founders like like you, where you really are, you probably are very often you're quite alone, I assume, or there's not many people and you just kind of have to try and go. Yeah, I think it's ideal to be able to be interviewing in a pair. Um, but yeah, in a lot of cases, um, 
you just don't have that kind of resources, whether it's because you're the founder and you're doing it yourself, or you're the only UX and product person in the company, or you're a developer who happens to really care about this and you're taking it on as a side project within your yeah. role. Um, and, and so even if it might be, um, you know, better to do it as a pair, like if you're going to get, you know, 90% of the insights from doing it yourself, then that's, that's better than zero. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the other nice thing you mentioned this, that you would bring, I, I forget if you said it was a developer or a UX person, but you had them to come along. And I, I wanted to call back to that because you know, it's if the if you if a product manager does all the work by themselves and they bring their brilliance to the developers and here's here's what I have learned, you know, that doesn't I see you smiling, that doesn't work nearly as well as when we all do it together and then we sort of we learn these things together and then the execution of whatever on these problems, it actually helps a lot with their creativity. They're they're already sort of working on the problems. And so if you go by yourself, I find that you're saying this is what Scott's saying. Scott says this, but if we go together as a team, this is what our customers say. And it's such a, and I, I want you, you mentioned that. I just wanted to call that out as something I think is quite important personally. Yeah. I love how Erica Hall uh, puts this in her book, Just Enough Research, where she says, you know, the, the, the person doing the interviews, you know, or, or, or the research like shows up and they're kind of like descend, descending from their pedestal of being like, hello, I have all of this blessed research, like, and it is for you to just, you know, passively consume and be influenced by, right? Like it doesn't really go well because there, people aren't bought into it at all. It, it just comes off as kind of condescending and uh, it actually may, even if it contains really good insights, like the way it's delivered is, is not um optimal um and so it really helps to have people in the room and even if you can't have every one of your developers in the room or um or your other stakeholders having at least one there for one of the interviews so that when the vps are sitting around being like what are, what are they doing like what is this it seems like a waste of time they're just talking to people there's at least someone in there saying you know what no actually i learned something and that i didn't even know after you know being in this business for 10 years right like and then they can be like okay well if somebody i know thinks this is a good idea. If they learn something from it, then maybe it's okay. And you basically use, you have social proof within the company. Mm, yeah. Great point. And I love what you said about, I found it a little funny. The executives are saying, well, they're just talking to people. What are they, what are they doing? It's like, that can't be useful. Uh, as opposed to thinking yeah. about their learning, they're pulling in information. That's, that's something that's very thematic. I feel like as part of managers, we have to fight for, our right to uh, for time. research for re <laughs> <laughs> no. fight for our right to research no but i think that is really latest beastie boys remix that's right. that's right i mean that's really true i mean i think very often if somebody isn't used to and um, some sometimes they're rather high up the ladder but isn't used to this especially solution free interviews it can mm -hmm. feel like very, very confusing. Like, why it's aren't you talking about our products? Like, yeah. the, so yeah. because that's the perspective, and it, and and I completely get why they're, I just confused by it. And 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 but the researcher usually who sits there, they get a lot of information, and they're really happy with the interview. And then you have a confused senior level person in there who doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> so, can have really help. Yeah, and it's you know I think there I think. I don't know if it's a personality trait or what, but you know, well, if you think about the stages of brainstorming, like the first stage, you know, 
all ideas are good ideas and there's lots of open questions and exploration and some people are just are naturally comfortable with that ambiguity and and just letting things be up and flow and then some people are very uncomfortable it's like well, this feels like a waste of time you know it feels like we need to that's a, that 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 idea you came up with that's a terrible idea which is there's a reason why we don't reserve reserve judgment um and uh, similarly there's some folks often in leadership who are uncomfortable with the um well the nature of a customer interview where you're letting to sense you're letting them lead you're you're exploring things with them and if, if uh, it doesn't feel structured if i had a client one time was sitting next to me kept wanting to pull me aside and discuss how it was going you know which was very dis disruptive to the uh to the process so i think a big takeaway let me just ask you so what challenges how do how do folks how do product managers overcome that um this this uh, negotiating for time with leadership helping to um communicate the value the importance of this when we know leadership's like hey i want to sell something i want to launch something i want immediate they just want something so quick and, and tangible what advice would you give for somebody who's really trying to promote um to fight for their right to to research I mean, so I won't, I won't claim to be an expert um, on that side of it. Uh, it's been, you know, five years since I worked in a larger company and had to do that kind of internal politicking. Um, but I will say, I mean, bring them into the process, right? Like just get them to say, you know what, the research says that if you just start with five, mm -hmm. right? If I can get, I can spend five hours on this over the next two weeks. And I would love to have you sit in the room with me, you know, show them the scripts in advance, right? Like maybe, you know, not necessarily bring them into the workshopping, but like, this is what we're asking them. This is why, like, you know, just kind of include them a little bit in the process. Right. And just so that they don't feel either, you know, threatened or confused by it. Um, but it, it's, it's difficult, right? Like, I mean, introducing research into an organization that doesn't do it is a slog. And um, I mean, anybody going through that can tell you how hard it is. And it, it really depends on the organization. But I think, you know, wherever you can to include people. And so it doesn't feel like, you know, there's these people off in this room doing this special thing that nobody knows about, and then they're going to come out and tell us what to do. Like, nobody really likes that. And so, so include people. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. Fantastic. Let's move on to the, your book. Um, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting as important as customer interviewing as a skill is, how few books there really are on it. Um, there was a, a book by a guy named Edmund McQuarrie for years called Customer Visits. It's, it's, it's not in pub, it's not in um, print anymore. Uh, the author just wasn't that interested, I, I, I guess, but there's, you know, there's a few things I can point to here and there, but that was one of the things I really gravitated to your book um, because it was, there's just not that many that I've run across that are just, just cover interviewing from, from end to end. So let's begin with the title as we get into your book, Deploy Empathy. What does that mean? So the title was kind of meant to be a wink to developers to let them know that this was a book for them. Um, because again, you know, when I first started writing, that was really the audience was like developers who have turned into founders, developers launching their own companies. Um, and, you know, interviewing sounds kind of like soft and squishy and or maybe scary. Um, and I wanted them to know that this was a book for them. And so using the word deploy in it, 
um, was a way to do that, but also you're using empathy and you're, you're using it in, in, in um, uh, for very, you know, specific business reasons. Right. Um, though my goal is to help people use it in the rest of their life too. Um, I learned much later that it's apparently also one of Gary Vaynerchuk's catchphrases. And I think if I had known that going into it, I would not have chosen that title, but now I'm stuck with it. Um, so, you know, that is what it is. Um, but but yeah, it's, like it's all about how obvious. to really, I, I, I wanted to, the, I guess the book is supposed to be very practical. So I think also the other thing about the word deploy is that it's, it's not a, it's, it's not a word that implies theoretical. It employs getting out and using it. Yeah. I, I really like the title, by the way, because I think there is also, there is many things in, there is a little bit of a tension in there, you could say. I mean, how can you deploy, uh, deploy is a very functional, practical word. Empathy has other associations. So I really like this, this, this play in a certain sense. And it makes perfect sense how you explain it. Like the kids, it's not about the book kind of, I mean, you could say learn empathy or how to become an emphatic person, but that is not what the book is about. Like it's, it's how can you use this tool or this skill empathy more or less? Like, is, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's focused on using it practically. And I mean, there's also already a book that's fantastic that I love called Practical Empathy by Indy Young. Um, and, you know, I, I, when I was originally naming it, I was like, you know what, people, people write, uh, you know, write a landing page or make more sales or, you know, get more conversions, build this feature on their daily to-do list. They don't right? Be more empathetic, right? Like unless a therapist has told them that, right? Like they probably don't, that's not something that makes it on their to-do list. And so I was like, how can I teach people how to have more empathy for themselves and other people through the process of something that they are already trying to do in the first place? Mm, Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, I love it. I, I think it's funny. We were actually discussing the title amongst ourselves. And we, we, it makes it memorable. I mean, you could have called it, you know, the handbook of customer interviewing. You know, you could have been much more to the point, but it makes it, it's just that sort of makes it blend into the handbook of everything else, right? So deploy empathy. It's it's very, it's it's memorable. I think it's a I think it's an inspired title. Uh, now, what audience did you specifically have in mind? So yeah, originally it was developers who um, are, are building their own products. So whether that's already full-time or they have a side project that they would like to become full-time. Um, and it's been uh, quite a surprise to all of the other people who have who have started um, using the book. Um, you know, my favorite part of the writing process was when I interviewed 30 of the people who had been reading the newsletter um, that I wrote because I wrote the entire rough draft of the book as a newsletter. So every chapter or half chapter went out as an email. Um, and so when I felt like I was pretty much done with the content, I took time to, to interview 30 people who had been reading that newsletter. Um, and I expected a lot of them to be, you know, yeah, you know, I'm a developer and I have my own SaaS. It's a one person thing. It's a 10 person thing, you know, or I have a side project and there's people who, you know, I'm, a, I'm a copywriter in the furniture industry. I'm a real estate agent. Like, um, let's just all of these different people that I didn't really write for when I, you know, when I was writing those emails, um, and, and yeah, architects, like all these people who, um, I, I never expected um, to be part of the readership. Um, 
and 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 also other product and UX people, which was kind of surprising because I felt like customer interviewing was kind of covered for us, so to speak, right? Like, you know, there's Jim Kovac's book, there's Steve Portugal's book, like, of course, you know, Bob Moesta's books and Clayton Christensen and like Tony Ulwick. And like, there's so many books on that versus for the, you know, developer founder, like the mom test is really the only book on that. And a lot of people had read that book. And in many ways, my ideal reader um, in the developer founder category is somebody who's already read that book. And then they would say, well, but how do I figure out uh, why I'm having churn? Like, you know, the book helped them figure out what um, they should build in the first place, um, but not some of the, 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 the questions that come on down the line. How do I talk to somebody who's canceled? How do I get feedback on a landing page I made? Um, so, so, so it, but it's been very surprising to see the reaction from uh, product people as well. Mm. Well, I love a lot of those authors you mentioned. I have to say, though, I don't think any of them do as good a job as you do with the customer interview, with, with the qualitative interview. You're sitting across you know, recruiting, just as a very tangible example. One of the most difficult things is how do you how do you set up the interviews? And a lot of books just they just leave out the topic altogether, or you know, you just hire a third party, or whatever. And you very in a very practical way have. Um, like steps about how do you actually line up customers? And if that doesn't work, then you can try this. So I really think uh, I, I love all those references you mentioned, but I, I don't, I don't think they, they address this as directly as, as your book did. And there's another thing I found quite special about it and your book, the tone is very encouraging. I almost, and I, I mentioned that um, in the, I mentioned that I was, I finished listening. I feel like I know you, even though I don't, because I listened to your audio book and we've, I feel like you and I have spent time walking around. <laughs> You've been in the car with me and, you know, we've been hanging out. I realize that's not hundred percent true, but it feels that way. But your, your book is written is very encouraging and your tone uh, in the audiobook so wonderfully done also very encouraging was that intention was that like intentional or is that just sort of your natural personality or i mean did you i'm wondering did you say i really want this to be an encouraging book or or i wonder if you could elaborate that on that a bit yeah i i really wanted people to understand what it is like to be on the receiving end of empathy mm. through the process of reading the book so it was very important to me to treat the reader empathetically. Um, and, and, and also, you know, thinking back to my original audience, um, you know, a lot of them hadn't spent much time in front of customers before. Um, I just, you know, one, one founder, for example, he's been running his SaaS for four years and he said that he had only spoken to a customer, um, you know, on the phone once in four years um yeah. had done everything else via email and so i was like you know we, we really have to start from from the ground up and and um uh, make people feel like that, that they can do this and that it will be worth their time if they do it um but uh yeah i guess give them you, you know i find so often when i interview people that you know maybe you got them on the phone in the first place because you promised them a $25 Amazon gift card or whatever. But like, you know, by the end of the call, many people will reject that. Instead, they're grateful for you for taking the time to listen to them. Um, and, and I just wanted it because most people don't have people in our lives who really just listen to us about some 
problem that we have, even if, you know, uh, you have like a wonderful spouse, like you probably haven't told them in depth for an hour about everything you do on a weekly basis to make sure the invoices get paid. Right. Like, or, you know, all those just sort of little boring everyday things. Um, and so when you do have that happen, um, there's just this kind of, uh, it's it's kind of a, a, kind of a profound feeling. And, um, I wanted to try to, to give that feeling to the reader so that when I am telling them how they are trying to make someone else feel, regardless of what kind of background they come from, maybe they had incredibly empathetic parents or maybe they didn't just from the process of reading the book, they understand that feeling that they're trying to cultivate in someone else. I I mean, it's written like a conversation, like when you're reading it, it's like, I mean, obviously I'm, we're not able to communicate back with you unless we have some kind of psychological <laughs> problems, but, but you, you speak with pauses and, and it's very much yeah. you, when you're reading it, it's like you are, you're talking to the reader. And I, I find that very enjoyable. And there's a couple of things I want to respond to. Hopefully I can remember them all. Um, well, well, one is, so in my, in my business, we were, we train people to, to interview customers and whatnot. And, um, you know, a lot of times they'll go through the training and they're excited and it comes time to get started and they just sort of stop. It is sort of, it is nothing. I can't, they just sort of get stuck. And my belief is that there is a fear and they're just uncomfortable and they just can't get, you know, they need that encouragement. They need, and there's, you know, I've tried things, but, um, but I feel like it, just in the tone, just in the, the, I don't cheerleading is not exactly the right word, but just the encouraging nature of your yeah. Yeah. to help to help bolster them a little bit and you and and I, I believe you if I remember correctly like you, I'm not going to have I'm not going to have your phrasing exactly right but but you, you mentioned that sometimes the interviews just don't go well and don't take it personally it's just that's why you do multiple interviews and so we can't always take every you can't take complete responsibility on this this dynamic experience with another person it's it's alive and you have to you take a little bit of a risk but I definitely can't think of any other resource that uh, is as encouraging as yours is and addresses that fear. So it's not all about knowledge of doing a customer interview. It's about, you know, getting over your internal anxiety about sitting down in in front of somebody. That's one of the challenges that that, that I have. So I thought that was really good. And I really like how you, I mean, you address this openly. I, I, I mean, a lot of the, uh, let's say other books, they might give you the method, but you really address this very openly. You say it can, you can, it can feel scary, but it's going to be okay. So you're really yeah. addressing the emotion, and I think you really hit the right emotions that people usually have in, before an interview. So I, I just want to kind of concur. So Scott is really time, time and again in your book, you say it's okay to f- to feel scared. It's okay if that blah blah. So it's just this. I don't know why people are then so so nervous about this. To be honest, so uh, what, what is the fear behind this? I mean, you could also think, say, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, people are afraid of offending someone. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing. They're afraid it's going to be awkward. You know, I mean, they're doing it in a business context. They're afraid that if they say something weird, that that's going to reflect poorly on the company or. Um, you know, I think there's kind of some, like if it's existing customers, there's a little bit of a, 
you know, yeah. poking a sleeping bear kind of fear, right? That's like, yeah. if you ask a customer why they're happy with your product, they're all of a sudden going to decide that they hate it. Um, <laughs> like there's definitely that fear, yeah. right? Like it's well, like, geez, they're paying the us, they're paying us, just leave them alone. Right. Like, you know, just, just <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah. so I mean, it, it really depends on the person too. Right. I think, and, and people coming from many different conversation styles have this fear, like, so, yeah. you know, uh, talkative people like me might be afraid that we're going to say too much. Um, quieter people might be afraid that they're not going to know what to say, but even people who are talkative might be worried that they don't know what to say. Right. And so I think it's important to recognize the fear and, and, and that's part of the, the showing people, showing the readers empathy, right. Is because yeah. there's a big difference between, um, many people are afraid when they go to do customer interviews, but don't worry about that feeling. Just put it out of your mind versus saying it's completely normal to be worried about doing interviews and it's okay. Yeah. yeah. There's a huge difference. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. It's like in the first example, it's like, just forget about it. That doesn't even, I mean, that, yeah. how do you even do that? It's You're, not going to work. <laughs> just, just to acknowledge it. It's normal. It's natural, but don't let that stop you. Just, you know, sort of embrace, yeah. embrace that a bit. If you tell someone, don't worry, they're going to worry. Like the operative <laughs> yes. word in that sentence is worry. When you negate a negative word, that gonna, is yeah. what somebody hears. Yeah. Um, and, and that was something that I was very attuned to throughout the book as well is, yeah. is, is using yet yeah, more, more positive. Um, yeah. Sort of affirming language that, that was not sort of, you know, fake positive, right. It's, it's not a like, you know, don't worry about it. You can do it. Um, it's, it, it's a, it's a, it's okay. Like maybe you need some more practice. Like we don't have to run from that voice that tells us that this is something to be afraid of. Like, that's fine. We can listen yeah. to that voice. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought the level of, um, of thought you put into exactly what you're talking about now. So the, the different phrasings, I think you give an example in the book where you, um, you're talking about an interview you attended, I think. I'm not sure it was you who actually did the interview, but the interviewer was uh, said, um, you're, you're doing fine when, a, when, a, when the person being interviewed had some, some doubts or hesitation. Didn't say, don't worry, for example, so, or it's no problem. I, so no, don't use the word worry or problem when you're actually telling someone that there's no problem, but just use a positive framing. And I thought just that, it, I mean, of course, in retrospect, it's, uh, makes, it makes total sense, uh, but it's, it's not something I would have necessarily uh, been wary of, I think, uh, doing, doing an interview, I think. So the level of detail you, you go into in, 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 in this, I think it was pretty amazing. And I think it's also true to the, I mean, the subtitle is, oh, so let me check. So, uh, so a practical guide to interviewing customers. And I really feel like it's, it. I mean, so for those who haven't read the book, you should. And there is really, I mean, you, you write out practical questions. This is the kind of questions you can ask to follow up. This is the kinds of questions if there is a silence. This is the, so you're, it's very down to earth, very practical. And I think that in itself takes a lot of kind of stress away because I feel like, these are exactly the practice. I mean, the general idea of, okay, we should talk to a customer. Okay. You can explain that in a very abstract sense, but 
the practice, I mean, at one point you're sitting there and the weight is on you and, and you have another person there and now you have to get the conversation and then it's about practical, practical things. So, and especially this, so especially follow-up questions. I mean, that's mostly my experience when, when I see people that try to start talking to customers or have maybe doing the first one, it's really hard to know how to follow up. It's not like, how do you, you can always say, well, you have to dig deeper. But how do you, I mean, it's very hard to do. How do you, what are actually the questions? And I think you do a really nice job there of, of well, giving those questions. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading um, uh, a book and it, you know, it gave like sort of five or 10 tips for running an interview. And one of them was, you know, uh, you know ask encouraging follow-up questions. And I was like, okay, you can hand that to somebody who has some background in yeah. UX and they're going to know what that means. But I could not give that to one of my developer founder friends and they would be able to just run with that. Like this really needs to get down to brass tacks of like, okay, when you say leave pauses for them to fill, like, what do you actually mean? Like when you say to encourage them to, to dig deeper, how, right? Like how do we really, really break this down? Yeah. And, and to that point, actually, I mean, I would say out of the, the three of us, I, I, I'm probably the one who has the least experience interviewing uh, customers. And I thought, the, I mean, the, the breadth of, of wisdom that you put out in the book and, and the level of detail is amazing. But to the extent that sometimes I, I felt slightly um, overwhelmed of, of the, okay, how can, how am I going to remember all, all of this? And uh, I was, I, we talked at the beginning about how um, you trained and Jan also trained go with, with mentors and, and going to, but for someone who is say a founder, uh, a developer founder, and who doesn't have access to these, to these mentors and they have the, your book, I mean, how would you advise them to practice these interviews? I mean, do you have any advice maybe? Yeah. I mean, I spent a whole chapter in the book on, on building that practice and I technically kind of too. So the first one actually has a practice interview activity that you can do with somebody else. Um, I mean, this, you know, could be a coworker, um, a friend. I mean, you know, it could be a family member, it kind of better if it's someone who's slightly distant from you. Um, but you could, you could do it with your spouse. Um, so a whole activity on how to practice it. And then there's an example of an interview um, in the book and then also audio of it as well, um, which actually is um, demand side sales from Bob West. So also has example interviews in it, by the way, um, which hmm. I think is the only other book I've seen that has example interviews. I don't know if his audio book has them um, or if there's an audio book, but um, an example. So you know what you're trying to work towards. Um, and then in the section on um, I call how to talk so people will talk. Every single one of those things of, you know, you know, use validating statements. So for example, saying that makes sense, right? Like it's for each one of those, you know, it's about 10 different um, tactics. The, there's an activity at the end of the chapter that is, okay, now go try this on your friends and family and coworkers for the next week. Like yeah. just pause there. Just, just practice not interrupting people. Okay. And then next week, let's, let's try using validating statements. Okay, then after that, let's, you know, let, let's think more about, you know, um, how we might, you know, focus on like not correcting people. Um, 
right? Like, so all of these different things and, and not trying to chew it all off at once, which I think, as you said, you know, could be quite overwhelming. Um, and, 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 um, yeah, kind of leave your head spinning a bit. Um, and then the other thing I did with that so that people didn't have to refer back to the book all the time was I made a set of templates, um, that people can buy in addition to the book. So it has all of the scripts, all of the follow-up phrases, kind of all of the, like the recruitment, uh, posts, like, so that the follow-up emails, like all those sort of nuts and bolts, basically, um, in Notion and Google Drive templates so that people don't have to flip through the book and they can just take the Google Drive, uh, file and just make a copy and then, you know, customize it for their own interviews or whatnot, or print out the list of follow-up questions so that they can look at that when they have that moment of kind of being sweaty and nervous and it's awkward and they don't know what to say. They, they have it right there on the paper with them. In a training role, one of the benefits I get is I get to hear people's questions about this, their concerns. And here's a very common question they have is there's, well, they say, how can I go to my customer and not be the expert? How can, you know, they're concerned about their own um, ego, for lack of a better term. They don't want to appear not knowledgeable. You know, I need to be the expert in front of my customer. And you're suggesting I let them be the expert. That's a very common question. How would you re respond to that? Yeah, this is one I remember having two really good calls with other founders about this one. And um, the way I suggest handling that is, you know, you, you introduce who you are and your, your company, of course, you know, and, and, um, but then saying, you know, you know, I've talked to other customers about this, or, you know, we've been running this business for 10 years today. I would like to really understand how this works from your perspective, you know, so I might understand, you know, um, you say, of course we, you know, we, um, we have this experience in it. You know, I've, I've talked to many customers, but it, framing it around them, Right. Because then it's not a question of, you know, me saying, for example, so can you tell me why you need geocoding in the first place? It's instead saying, I'm really curious today. I'm hoping to learn why your company needs geocoding in the first place. How does this work in the bigger picture of what you guys are trying to do? Right. So, so, so it's not me asking a question as, what is this and why would why would one need this in the first place but is a very specific why do you need this in the first place which i think really helps with that um and kind of gives some padding around yes i'm the founder yes i need to be the expert but i also want to give them the floor this isn't about me and them wondering how much i know the whole point is for me to learn what they're trying to do and i think if, if you can kind of phrase it in, in that way, then, then it will help. And then people, people aren't like, well, why is the founder of this company asking me this question about why I use their product? Like, that seems like a dumb question. Shouldn't they know? Right. It's, no, I want to hear specifically about why you need this. And like, how, what are the goals you're trying to do? How does this fit in? Where does this fit in in your, your roadmap and your pipeline? You have a beautiful sentence in your book. I, I highlighted a couple and there you say, or well, okay, fair enough. It's two sentences, but anyway, so you're writing there. Many adults feel like they seem smarter when sharing their own knowledge rather than asking clarification questions. Yet that's the precise opposite of what you should do in a customer interview. And I, I just love this because, and I wonder if you would agree, but, but, but I mean, on the one hand, if you just try to seem smart in front of your customer, you will not, you will, you won't learn anything, but then it's also true. You can 
seem smart, if you like, by asking the right questions. And I think on, on the other hand, so if you are being interviewed and somebody asks you good questions, you also get the impression, okay, that, that person really knows what, what they're looking for. They really know what they want to understand. So I, yeah, I just was wondering if, 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 or is it just completely forget about being smart or not smart? So we shouldn't even care about this or can there be like smart follow-up questions or do you have to be a smart interviewer, let's say? I don't think you have to be smart to do interviews. I don't think you even need to be knowledgeable in the field that you are asking someone about. In fact, and sometimes yes. it's better if you have no knowledge about it. Um, but you also don't want to fake that you have no knowledge about it either. Um, and I think it's helpful to reframe it from appearing smart versus not smart and appearing interested versus not yes. interested, right? Because if someone is asking you genuine follow-up questions that that show a level of you know technical or subject matter understanding but not in a kind of show-offy sort of way let me paraphrase you know let me give you a paragraph of my knowledge before i actually ask the question but more of a, a correct question that really cuts to the the core of it right like that shows your expertise that also gives you really good information um yeah. So, so I think it's more about showing interest in them, right? And and if you if you get them talking about themselves and their experiences, like I, I feel like ideally in an interview that they forget you're even a person, they forget you're even there. Like they just they <laughs> feel like they're, you know, they're, they're they're almost sort of alleviating themselves of this weight of even if it's just some boring everyday business process they're doing, right? Um, yes. you know, and and um brain imaging studies show that, you know, parts of our brain light up when we talk about ourselves and our own experiences to other people, those areas of the brain um, associated with pleasure and enjoyment and connection, they don't light up when we're listening to somebody else talk about their experience. Yeah. And yeah. so the more you can have them talking about their experience and framing it around them talking about themselves and what they're trying to do, the better your results will be. And and maybe they don't hang up the phone and say, wow, that person is really smart, but maybe they hang up and say, wow, that company really cares about people. Yeah. And I think the second one is more powerful and more, um, more helpful to a business. I so agree. This is so nice. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's, and back to our point about the, when folks are a bit anxious or reserved or scared, I think they are underestimating how much of an endearing experience this can be for the customer. Um, yeah. So you're on a you're on a um, on the the farm there. So when I was with John Deere, we were often interviewing folks as uh, compact tractors. So we were visiting folks very much like yourself, and going out looking at their tractors and walking over their property and fruit yeah. farmers, it's, fruit farmers. <laughs> yeah. It's I mean all across the country. Um, but what's interesting. Uh, when you when you're approaching somebody's home on a couple of hundred acres in the middle of nowhere, you know, a lot of times you, you, you meet, a, a, I want to say a lot of variety of people, a lot of folks, they, you know, if they're living in a pretty um, away from people, they, that's the lifestyle they've chosen. And they're, they're not used to these, uh, you know, people with their clipboards, it's sort of an unusual, they're very <laughs> standoffish. It's, it's like, they're very anxious and nervous as we're approaching, which makes us, but fast forward a couple hours. After, after we're just listening, 
and we, you know we're just let we're, we're deeply exploring their challenge with their tractor and here and there and we can hardly leave because they're like oh they're <laughs> just so it's they are so endeared to us and they're they are literally like hey let you know call me the next time you're in town and it is it's it's like it's it's um it's um it's uh, it's amazing what that experience is like. And of course, by the time we've got our data, we're sort of wanting to you know, get out of there. And they're like <laughs> following us to the car talking. I can't, I cannot tell you what a common experience that is. And, and I hearken back to something you said, you know, a lot of people, they just, when, when, when did somebody sit there and just listen to them for an hour, an hour and a half or two hours? It just listened and, and not only listened, but was deeply interested in what challenges they had it was an amazing experience and you know if for for, for b to c um so if, if i'm interviewing tractor owners somewhere you know if they if they'd like me or don't like me you know you know john deere makes a lot of tractors it doesn't matter but b to b it turns out that relationship is kind of important and that so this endearing of of the interviewee and interviewers is a pretty pretty in, in, important thing anyway i just i want to circle back back around to that now in your book you say ask for clarification even when you don't need it. I wonder if you could elaborate on that a bit. I can elaborate that, but first I want to talk about tractors. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> because one of my favorite interviews that I did years ago, that is one that, you know, people people will ask me for like, you know, some of the different use cases. And and I, I use this one all the time. It was a company that makes software for tractors. And I was saying how, you know, they use us because um, they are getting health reports back from the tractor every day. They're getting the coordinates back. And so first they need to be able to convert the coordinates into an address to know where it is, for example, that it's in Delaware. But they also need to add the time zone to it because they need to make sure that the, the status report back from the tractor that came back at 1159 every day is correctly timestamped to being in at 1159 in Delaware and not, you know, at the one in California is also getting timestamped at 1159. And, um, and, and I remember this, you know, talking to this person, this was years before I lived on a farm being like, wow, I didn't even really realize that was a thing. And they use our product. Like, that's so cool. And then, but then people ask me, you know, like what kinds of customers you have, you know, Oh, banks and insurance companies and academic researchers and tractors, software for tractors. And the people <laughs> like software for tractors. And then, you know, um, but it, I mean, it really is true. Like it really does um endear people to the interviewer and to you know you to the customer as well and i think that's so powerful for for when we're building something to really you know having that use case in mind you know having stood in the field with them and and you can see okay well geez this is like you know this is why this handle isn't working for them right like they've they've got a whole bunch of other stuff in their hands they got the dog running around right like you really get it but also for them like I find that the customers that I interview, they're the ones who become our most vocal supporters. They're the ones offering to do a testimonial without us asking, offering to do a case study, yeah. telling other companies about us, telling their friends about us, like, because it is so rare just to, to feel like a company even cares about you. I mean, how many of us have spent hours on the phone with an airline, right? Like, we're just so used to feeling disposable and not listened to that when you have a company that does take that time, whether it's a founder or a, a product person or a consultant on behalf of that company, like you really, you just feel like they care. And, and that is, is powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure if you kind of get 
I mean, if you can get that one step further into the product, it it will just it it just shows. I mean, you will if you're really kind of you're you're curious and you're interested and you learn something about your customer, and then you have the ability to translate that into a product, which is a whole different thing. But if you can really do this, I think it 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 will show and it will it will it will it will just be more successful. I mean, how? But on the, on the one hand, from a very distance, you could say, well, but why don't we do this all the time? Like for me, maybe I'm just too much in my bubble here, but the, the, the kind of advantages of doing this and, and, and you emphasize this as well, like try to talk to your customer or customers every week if you can, like try to fit in or at least make it a regular thing to do this. I'm, I'm sometimes kind of taken aback of, of why don't we do this all the time? And why do companies not do this all the time? Because for me, at least the, the advantage seems so obvious, like, yeah. It's just clear. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and to, so to get back to the, the earlier question about <laughs> talking about tractors, about um, asking clarification questions, even when you don't need them, that was your question, right? right yeah. yes. um, so this is kind of a, a you know, y- you basically, even when you understand something, when you ask someone to clarify it, they will give you more detail. Um so, for example, you can say, you know, somebody says, oh, yeah, I, I took the tractor out to Harrow. And then and then you can say, oh, so, so you took the tractor out to Harrow. Right. And then it's like, well, yeah, because I, you know, I needed to get it ready. Like and right. And then they will start talking. Um, but then you can also um, ask for clarification incorrectly, which will get them to elaborate even more. And so they say, they, oh, you know, first I take the harrow out and then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this and blah, 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 and I'm out in the fields. And then you say, so let me just make sure I have that correctly. First, you plow the fields and then, and then, and then they'll correct you and they'll say, no, no, actually, I take the harrow first and here's why. And then like, and all this kind of stuff, they'll completely forget that you mixed that up, but you will get so much detail back from them. And the value of this, and I think what's kind of counterintuitive to people is because when you already understand the process, you're like, oh, well, if course they're going to use the harrow in this situation right like you can be like well why is this particular person using the harrow at that particular time and what is that whole experience like for them and if you're somebody who makes harrows like this is very crucial information to you you know a lot about the product but you want to hear about how the customer is actually using it literally in the field um and 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 they will give you so much detail when you ask for clarification even when you don't need it or when you ask for clarification and you intentionally rephrase their process incorrectly, but just, just slightly enough, you just switch, you know, a phrase, a a phase of the process, or you, you know, use, use a slightly different um, tool reference, for example. I love Um, tactic. The phrase is slightly incorrect. That's, that was a, that's a definite new tool in my box that was not there before. As you described that you, you reminded me of something um, when when I read your book, well, let me say something. When I read Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference, who is so a good. hostage negotiator, I saw immediately, I was like, I felt like I discovered something. And I was like, I saw all this relevance for customer interviewing. And I sort of thought I was the only, I was like, well, I just, I don't know. I just, th- I didn't, it didn't, it, anyway, when I read your book, you also reference his book and you also you're the only you're the only other person that i've i've run across that has specifically mentioned this book on hostage negotiation <laughs> as having useful things for customer interviewing could could you elaborate on that what did you see in his techniques that you've 
Because you just put one of them to, to practice in your example. I wonder if you could ex elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, so that actually, that connection um, kind of came to me uh, when I was in business school. So um, I was in business school part-time um, and uh, I started in 2017. So right around the time I, I went full-time on my business um, and um, and and I took a negotiations class um, as part of that degree, which was, I mean, the maybe one of the most important classes I've ever taken and just, you know, in multiples has, has paid for my degree. Um, and, and so I was, you know, reading that book as, as part of the class. And I, I remember like learning about these things. I was like, oh, this is just like a customer interview, except you've kind of got like this motive attached to it. But like, I found that um, sort of the base skills for negotiation um, were very similar um, to an interview. Now they're very different um, in a lot of cases, like, you know, with, with Chris Voss, for example, he's trying to get a hostage out of a bank and that's, there's a very high stakes. There's a very specific goal in mind for an exploratory interview. You may not have that specific kind of points you're trying to drive at in the end, um, definitely much more relaxed, but a lot of the tactics used are, are, are quite similar. And, um, and I, I also, I like quoting his book a lot in my book because I could quote other people, but interviewing sounds to critics, it sounds like soft and fluffy. And if you quote somebody who's a former FBI chief hostage negotiator, it no longer sounds fluffy. Um, and you know, it's, I, one review online sort of, you know, said that I over um, relied on his book, but I actually, I, I intentionally used him um, and his book to remind people that this is, is not just a, uh, a soft skill, right? This is a very uh, respectable, serious skill that if this is that, you know, this is what gets hostages out of a situation, not going in guns blazing, but like, you know, talking to the to, to the hostage taker right like and this is what you do like if it works in that situation then it's gonna work for you to try to figure out why people are canceling your software i think one of the key the commonalities is you're trying to learn he's trying yeah. to learn from that from the the hostage uh, taker essentially probably anything he can that might help something that he can provide or so, something that helps to negotiate the situation and when we're clearly just trying to learn so so the the, the technique I, I observed you using even in, in your example was like well i take the harrow out in the yard and he would have you repeat back so you take the harrow out in the yard and then just and just let it you know repeat their words back to him and, and let yeah it just go. let it hang yeah just repeat exactly um what they have said back yeah so i was very excited to see i wasn't the only person that saw that connection i want to talk such about such a good book such a good book. i want to talk about a rubber duck you've got yeah. a rubber duck oh, yeah. cover surely this is <laughs> a popular question i i love it it gets it gives your book kind of an icon iconography icon uh tell us about the rubber duck what's the deal behind that yeah so so the concept of the rubber duck um it it's inspired by um, something from the famous book, The Pragmatic Programmer, uh, which is a, I think it's from the nineties, a book about programming. And, and it says, you know, in order to, uh, figure out, um, a problem with code, developers should keep a rubber duck on their desk to talk to, uh, when they're trying to figure out a problem and in the process of talking to the duck, they will realize the solution themselves and then be able to get back to work. 
And I was kind of inspired by this because, you know, I, I realized, you know, years ago when, you know, when, we, you know, um, with our business, you know, my husband is the developer and, and I have some experience with coding, but, you know, I'm a product person and, and, you know, at dinner time, he would be telling me about something he was trying to figure out. And I knew that like, I can't, I, I can't tell him about, you know, how to, how to do things with the load balancers or the servers or whatever. Right. But like, I can ask questions and I can listen. And my job is functionally to help him figure it out on his own. And I realized a while ago that it's actually kind of a lot like you're doing in an interview. Of course, you kind of, you have an agenda, you have your questions, right? But like, you were just sort of there to absorb. And, and, and so you kind of picture yourself as the rubber duck um, who is just there to listen, just there to absorb and, and, and just hear what somebody else has to say. Now, you're not necessarily trying to help them solve a specific problem as I might be with, you know, my husband and, and all of his servers. Um, and, but it's, it's, it's like a very, it's a, I think it's just helpful to kind of like, kind of picture that in your head. It's like, okay, I'm not somebody who's here to talk and here to say things and here to, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, sound smart, right. And show what I'm, I'm all about. I'm just here to be a duck that is just going to listen. Um, and, and I think it's kind of a, like, a, just like a helpful little, um, not a, you know, benemic, but like, just like a little, just a little thing to kind of like, remember if you feel yourself talking a bit too much or whatever, just like remind yourself, like, I'm just, just picture myself as the duck. I'm just there to listen, just here to absorb the story. And it's a what this is great. It's great to have a tangible reminder. Yeah. So it, it's funny as I was thinking, a lot of things came to mind when I read that story. First of all, well, so um, you know, Larry King said that you know I don't learn anything while I'm talking, but I don't. I actually I think you do learn stuff while you're talking. They, I, because if well, first of all, to begin with your original the way you phrase it, yes, you're the duck. The customer's talking, but also I see it in an interview where that can be reversed. But when you're talking, you're you're tell, you're explaining to the customer the way you understand it, checking with them, verifying with them, paraphrasing. I think you I think I heard you say A B C D E, and then they'll cor to correct you, you know where where it's off. So even though you're actually talking, you're 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 internalizing this um, to better understand it, which I think can help you to ask better questions. And also, you're being very respectful because you're not assuming. You're being very respectful of this is what I thought you said. You take the harrow here and you do this and you harvest the raspberries and the do you know do i have that i don't want in other words you're you're signaling i don't want to leave this until you give me permission that that this right. is right and then it's like yes. deferential in a way yes exactly yeah exactly so i love the and you know think about like uh, as when you're studying um in school you know one of the things that was helpful for me personally was studying with other people and trying to explain it back to them trying to this idea in my head I, I can't do that in my room by myself. But if I'm explaining it to my folks I'm studying with, I'll, or, or even if I'm trying to teach it, it sort of it sort of lines itself up a little better. And and by the way, you actually talk about this notion of making people feel like they are teachers uh, in the book. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, and, and this is something that um, the famous marketing psychology professor uh, Robert Cialdini found. Yeah. was that um, one of the most um, powerful ways to influence someone else 
um, is to elevate them to the position of teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, to what we were talking about earlier about um, how can I make sure that they know that I have some ex- expertise in this. Um, you're, they're teaching you about their experience. So you might be a subject matter expert, but you are not an ex- expert in their experience. Only they are an expert in their own experience. And that is what you are trying to learn. Yeah. I somehow can't, I can't resist. I'm, I'm very sorry. So I have two things, but I, so I have a philosophy background. That's why I kind of can't resist because this all, it sounds so Socratic. So if, if you have the time, Kind of, I mean, what is the kind of the one famous sentence that Socrates always says is, he's, he, I know that I know nothing. So he acknowledges in a certain way that he knows nothing. And then he walks around and lets people tell him, okay, what's freedom? What's justice? What's blah, blah, blah. Then a whole bunch of problems ensue, but that's not a question. But taking this stance of, I'm not the person that knows. So, and you, please, you customer, educate, tell me what, what, what kind of, what you know, and I want to learn from you is really flipping this around. And I think this is kind of a certain kind of a stance that you need to take, but really, and I love the metaphor that you used before, gives the stage to, to the other person, like giving the stage to the other person and, but not in a way that puts them on a spot, but really in a way that makes them open up. So I think, I don't know, maybe that's too far-fetched, but that's what I, what I was thinking about. The second question is, or, well, that was more of a remark. The question is, does your husband have a rubber duck? Or... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think of myself as his rubber duck, but okay, actually okay. I was at a, I was at a uh, you know, a street fair uh, a couple weekends ago and there was a, an artist selling, um, you know, glass art and one of them happened to be a little rubber duck and I was like, oh, that needs to go on my desk in the shed quarters. Um it's really interesting about the sort of yeah, Socratic dialogue. Is that what it's called? Right. Yeah. Or Socratic questioning. Like, um, I think you're, you're kind of really the first person to really bring that perspective, um, into it. Right. I can really see that. Yeah. I mean, it's, I encourage you. I mean, I, I re, because I think it's about a lot of what you're saying is, is, is about what stance do you take towards yourself? I mean, in, in, and it's very an awkward or awkward, but it's a very unusual position for somebody. If they're starting to do interviews, it's a very unusual position to kind of just take yourself back. Usually it's the other way around, even especially if you are in a big corporate, there is, I mean, or other contexts, you just, you're very used to putting yourself in the front. You have to fight for stuff. You have to, blah, blah, blah. anyway. And then, Suddenly the light goes on, there is a customer and making that switch of, it's not about me. I want to learn from you. That is not something we often do in our lives. It's a very unusual experience probably in, in the beginning. And, and I think, so that's why it reminded me so much of this, this Socratic way of questioning, because it's, there is also the belief in there, uh, in the Socratic method, at least that the other person knows like you, you know, and I just, at one point he says, I'm just, I'm just bringing out something you already know. Yes. So, and then I think that is kind of the stance or, uh, yeah, that was what I'm at least was thinking about when you explained like how, how, how to do entry. Yeah. I, I mean, and that's, I think it's something I love about the rubber duck idea. Uh, even, you know, the original story of it is that it assumes that the answer is already within the programmer. Right. 
Um, and, and I think that, um, I don't know, I guess sort of affirming the, like the underlying validity of what the other person thinks and feels and knows, um, is incredibly important. Even if you're not helping the customer figure out a problem, you're approaching it from the perspective that their perspective and their process is valid, even if it seems convoluted and complicated and inefficient to you, there is an internal logic there. And you have to start with the assumption that what they are doing makes sense to them. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it doesn't, you know, sort of make sense to you or make sense to you as on a general basis, right? Or maybe they don't think it makes sense and they, and they will tell you, but they will, there is a, even the most convoluted process has an internal logic to it and it has it for a reason. And if you're trying to sell them a product that fits somewhere into that process, which arguably everything is from a jobs to be done perspective, (laughs) um, then you need to take that process at its, uh, you know, uh, um, at its face value in order to help someone improve it. Because if you just kind of come in with a wrecking ball and say, well, that process is convoluted, you should do this instead, mm. you're you're missing it entirely. Yeah. I love that you kind of connect these two jobs to be done, which we haven't mentioned. So maybe, I don't know, but but maybe we should go in there. I mean, you mentioned this a couple of times throughout your book, the importance of, of jobs to be done and jobs to be done thinking. So maybe can you can you elaborate a little bit on, 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 on this and how you maybe also kind of learned about it? Yeah, I mean, I feel like Jobs to be Done is, I mean, it is the heart and underpinning of the book and the methodology. Um, but since it's intended to, both since it's intended to be a practical book, I did not want to dwell too much on theory. I also didn't want to make the reader feel like they should understand all of the theory because I wanted to get them to action and insights as quickly as possible. And so it was like, how can I teach them about Jobs to be Done throughout the process of learning this. So we don't have to first be like, okay, first we're going to learn this theory. Like there's a couple chapters in the beginning that are kind of on that, but it's it's very basic. There's references to jobs to be done books, but it's not like, that's more of like when you get time and if you want, like, here's a breadcrumb, here's something you can go with further. Like it was very important to me to do like basically just focus on the, the things that I felt like were not um, sufficiently covered in other books books and then signpost to those other books. Like I didn't want to write a book that had already been written. Um, and, and so it's very much the underlying um, of, of the book. And I learned about jobs to be done when I was learning about interviews. So it's really, and, and activity theory and all that kind of stuff all around the same time. Um, so it very much guides my perspective mm. on this. Um <laughs> but I intentionally don't, I don't talk about it too much directly in the book yeah. because I, I'm just like, let's, let, let's just get you to implementing this. And then if you want to, you know, you can, you can go read some Clayton Christensen articles. You can read a Bob Moesta book. Like you can, like, you can do that after we've kind of satisfied your, like these, these fears you have about doing the interviews and what do you actually do? And like, that was yeah. what I really wanted to focus on, but I could talk about jobs to be done all day <laughs> <laughs> no but i love this i think it, it's it's i mean it's it's in a sense it's i mean nobody put it bluntly nobody wants to learn about jobs to be done let's be honest <laughs> i mean 
just a couple of weird guys like me, Scott and Jonathan, but like, so your job you is not is, to learn like, about jobs to be done, right? That is like right, learning job jobs to be done is not the job, right? It's, exactly. I want to learn Some, jobs to be done so I can do something else. That's what I meant. That's which what, is the yeah. sort of, yeah, it's like this kind of, uh, it's, it's pretty funny actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, when you think about that, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think so, so from that perspective, I really liked it. So, you, I mean, you, you give the hints, you give the books, but you say it in the very beginning. I mean, you can go down that rabbit hole, then go there, but here is what you want to do. I mean, if you want to interview, here are the steps and that's, that's the job that they have. So I, I really like it. So it's perfectly, perfectly fine. Yeah. I think that was very, uh, I think it was a very informed, um, mm. inspired choice to stay out of some of that jobs be done depth for that new interviewer. I mean, you have exactly the practical information they need at yeah. their fingertips. And as you know, uh, Jan mentioned Jonathan, now we can, we tend to go deep into jobs we've done, which almost can make it difficult to teach at times because you're, you're, you have, it's hard to, it's hard to back up. Oh, wait a minute. This person doesn't need all, all of this, which was really gets me to my next question. If we have somebody listening that, you know, is just really brand new, they just really want to understand interviewing for the first you know, they feel like they need to do it in their role. What, what step one, what advice would you give somebody who wants to learn uh, how to do this? Uh, get my book, <laughs> either <laughs> the, the physical version or, or an audio book, uh, depending on how you consume books. Um, but then there's a chapter in there um, that says, you know, it's basically how to get started with interviewing, no customers required. And that's that section on how to, practice interviewing and it's, it's basically a roadmap for getting started with us. And, and maybe just to um, add on to this, uh, so you discussed these exercises previously. Um, again, being less experienced in interviews, something that perplexes me slightly is what do you have in your mind when when you're interviewing so i mean because you still want to have some kind of of roadmap or are you really is your mind just blank or do you kind of have a, a check that okay i know i need to still get information about this and this and that how does that work yeah i mean so you always have a roadmap and i and i feel like the script is really that roadmap um, I always suggest, first of all, having a script, probably, you know, workshopping it with your team. This is something that Stripe does when they're doing interviews. They always just practice their, their scripts on one another, make sure it flows, um, even though it, it usually does not follow the script exactly. And that's actually often the sign of a great interview that it doesn't follow yeah. the order. Um, but then printing it out and giving yourself like five carriage returns in between each question so that you can jot down notes and so you can say, okay, I asked my first question. They answered kind of, they actually answered these two questions on the front page. And then they gave me little hints about this other one. I'm just going to jot that down quickly for later. Maybe we can, I can jump to those questions now and then we can get back to us. And so it kind of reminds you of where you're going. Um, but then also kind of using, using frameworks, using jobs to be done in that. So, you know, for example, somebody tells you about a problem they have and then, you know, following up is, okay, well, how often does this happen? When was the last time they did this? You know, using, you know, the, the jobs to be done pieces like functional, social, and emotional, like saying, okay, so you told me that you took the tractor out in the field and you used the harrow. Was there anyone else you were working with on that? Right. Or like, when, when was the last time you did this? And if it turns out they only do, well, harrow is a terrible example of this, but like they only do it every 10 years, they're not going to be somebody you want to talk to rather than somebody who is taking their tractor out every week to pull up weeds in the fields. Like, 
we are hero um then <laughs> that's somebody who's going to give you a lot of good information right and so like kind of having having a script uh maybe having a bank of questions to fall back on and then kind of just having your giving yourself sort of some 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 guardrails almost of when to know to dig deeper and so so asking them how often does this happen like you know can i ask you just like how much are you currently paying uh for this or how much do you, time do you spend on it right like and then that will sort of help you guide the conversation. I mean, something I love about interviews is that oftentimes you learn the, the thing that you, you went into it hoping to learn, but oftentimes you learn something else that you had no idea was even there. And it turns out to be much bigger than the thing that you thought you were researching. And to me, that's so exciting. Um, and, and and so so yes you you have um you have a script but um and, and you have kind of a direction that you're you're looking to go in right but and but also you need to leave you know some of that analysis for for afterwards and not try to sit there and you know rebuild your product strategy while you're talking because because then you're not listening you're rebuilding your product strategy in your head Maybe now is a good moment. How do you deal with probably a big fear as well is exactly what we had now pauses and silence. So how do you, how do you deal with the pause or, or a moment of silence within, within an interview? Because I, probably a lot of people are f- afraid of this. You know, it's interesting. Is it, is it also culturally dependent how much you would be afraid of a pause? Um and, and I think it's the first thing is for people to calibrate themselves and understand what their own natural inclination for pausing and, and leaving space and when they know to jump into a conversation. Um, I love um, the linguist, um, Dr. Deborah Tannen's work on this. Um, you know, she's recorded conversations throughout the decades and, you know, some people show engagement by interrupting people and talking over them. By contrast, people from, so that's, I think she says people from New York and New England, which is where I'm from. People from California, for example, they might wait for a pause. People in Japan would wait for an even longer pause to feel like it's their turn to speak. And so if you put somebody from New York in the room with somebody from Japan, like the person from Japan is going to feel like they can never, they never get a chance to speak. And the person from New York is going to think they're not interested. So it's important to first calibrate and just notice your own conversation style. And it's like, do I feel like I'm having a really good conversation with someone when I say something and then there's a pause and then I get to continue talking or I pause and then they say something or I don't even pause. And then they talk over me and they're finishing my sentence and they're showing that they are, um, they're showing their, I feel understood that way. Right. And so just kind of calibrating that first and knowing where, where you are, but then also that pauses are so powerful. Right. And, and, and even if it's awkward, it can be really good. So there's an American um, radio host named Terry Gross, who um, she, you know, she says that she will pause for three beats longer than is comfortable and let the other person fill that space. And often what they will fill that space with is the most interesting part of the interview. Um, now, sometimes it gets to be awkward, but you can use that to your advantage, right? Like if you ask a, you know, a big question and you, you, you give them that pause and the other person says, are you still there? 
Can you hear me? <laughs> you can say something that compliments them and throws the ball back to them. Like, oh yeah, I was just taking notes on that last thing you said. It sounded really important. And now you've just told them, wow, they're really listening to me and what I'm saying is important. Okay, what was I just talking about? Well, I guess I was talking about the harrow. That was the important thing. Yeah. Can you can you just say more about that? Well, I feel like I already said it, but you know, well, I forgot something, right? Like that always people will tell you that they don't have anything to say and then they will keep talking, um, which is it's so funny. But so you can like, or you can say, oh yeah, I was just giving you space to think, right? It, it, you know, to what we were talk talking about earlier, like adopting this almost deferential posture towards them. Yeah, I'm just thinking so much about my own I should do such a self-assessment. I feel like I'm a New Yorker or something like that. But anyway. <laughs> I was determined not to speak first after that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, a, that's why I was hanging out there. I was just like, I'm just going to let, I'm going to, I'm going to be the last you know, to talk. <laughs> to be very notice, honest, I was thinking. <laughs> notice how you talk with your best friends from growing up. Right. I was I was talking to one of my mm -hmm. best friends from high school a couple weeks ago. I don't necessarily notice this when I'm talking to, say, you know, my husband or, or my in-laws or, or, you know, friends of mine in my daily life. Right. But I was talking to one of my friends from high school and I noticed, you know, I got off the call and I just felt so energized afterwards. But I noticed the way we talked to one another and. That conversation flow, right, like when you even if you're an introvert, right, like that what feels the most comfortable to you notice how that conversation is is it is there a lot of pausing is there a lot of sort of you know and this might be regional it might just be you as a person um or are you talking over one another is it very animated like are you finishing each other's sentences and that's what makes you you feel understood right like notice like just just call up your high school best friend and just notice how you talk and how they talk I think this is fantastic because, you know, in most um, voice of customer courses, this is usually covered the topic of silence. But here's what I've heard that I've never heard before is how it can be culturally different and that you need a self-aware. I'm repeating. I'm trying to paraphrase back to you. Um, but so a couple of things you need to be have a self-awareness of your own preference or style. And also the person you communicate with there, you just be aware that there's, you don't know what theirs is going in and maybe it's something you can be uh, listening out for. That's a much more sophisticated uh, way to approach it than just, you know, just, you know, then just leave the silence out there, which is, I get, this is often good advice, but um, yeah, but it's, that's, that's, I'll be, I'll be chewing on that one for a little bit. I'm not sure what my stuff, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what mine is. Um, yeah, that's that's excellent. And now we're all letting it hang. <laughs> and I have no one there speaking. Now, now we're just showing off. How we can, how we can Ooh, look at us interviewers. Look how much we can pause. <laughs> but it wasn't that long, would you be very <laughs> No, it was right. But then somebody would like you feel that urge to jump in and fill it. Yeah. yeah. And when we're interviewing someone, we want them to talk. <laughs> We do. I was honestly, I'm so one thing is about thinking about customer interviews, but I just had so many flashbacks to discussions with my wife, to be honest. Where I feel like with, with, this could be really helpful of analyzing like what can, because I probably, I, I am somebody who jumps in and interviewing for me takes a lot of energy. I mean, I can, I can do maybe two a day, but it takes a lot of energy for me because I, I have a, 
I have a tendency to feel like I have to speak and explain and talk and all that. So, but, and, and then that's why I like doing interviews because I have to switch around a lot of my usual inclinations, but it takes a lot of energy for me really to, to prepare myself mentally first and then really assuming that position and, and basically shutting up because that is not, it's not what I do, but I, I tend to jump in and, and it's a horrible habit, but I have this habit of jumping into somebody is speaking and finishing this, not in a, interview but in a friend conversation like a friendly conversation with people i i will just start blabbering in the middle of their sentence which is a horrible habit and maybe i need some little bit more kind of self-reflection on this i don't know <laughs> well, i mean think i think you're a duck so- think of yourself as a duck <laughs> I mean, exactly <laughs> you're the duck <laughs> i something i feel like you know you have to say is first i think that all conversation styles are valid right so oh, even if it so. turns out that in an interview you need to learn to give them more space and, and use pausing and not talk over them, right? That doesn't mean you have to change how you talk in your normal life, right? That doesn't mean that's not a valid way of communicating because in the family you grew up in, that was that was yeah. probably the way you needed to communicate in order to, you know, make yourself seen and heard, right? Like, or in the, the, the community you grew up in, right? Like, so that like, it's valid regardless of what you need to change um, about how you talk in an interview. Um, by the way, Deborah Tannen has a great book about men and women communicating with one another. And you would probably find it very insightful because it'll say like, you know, I the white, they're, so. they're, you know, the, the men and wife are driving on a road trip and, and you know, the, the, the husband says, um, you know, like, um, oh, I've heard this place has good sandwiches and, and the wife goes, oh, really? And then just leaves it there. And what the husband is trying to say is I'm hungry. And she's saying, oh, he read a news article about a sandwich, new sandwich place. And he's telling me about it. Okay. Right. Like something completely different is communicated. Um, And so I think you might find that book helpful. She's also done a ton of podcasts on it. But Jonathan, I'm really curious what you think about this, because I noticed where Jan is, you know, sort of very eager to share and, and, and jump in you are definitely more um, hanging back a little bit. And I'm curious how you feel about um, these sort of tactics of, of, of interviewing and how, and how you maybe change yourself or not when you're interviewing. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I'm definitely more interested, like introvert, uh, more of an introvert person. Uh, so that's the first things. Um, and, and I also think just generally speaking, there's three of us and you do mention in, in your book, actually, that you should be maximum two people to interview. And, and I don't want to speak over people. And especially on this topic where I believe I have less experience than both Scott and Jan. So I just want to give a bit more space to them because I know that they, they're very experienced on this topic so I think it's it's contextual given the the, the topic of our discussion, um, but yeah, I think also generally speaking, I'm probably more of a, uh, more introverted. Um, I, that's about it, I think. Um, I feel like we got so, to shell in action a little bit there. But so when you go to interview Jonathan, I'm just I'm just curious. Like, do you have to like kind of like do you have to like poke yourself to like talk more? Definitely. I think, I think as you very nicely said, that there isn't one style that's better than the other. I think it's, it's very much dependent on the dynamic between the people talking and maybe in, um, 
discovery interview, a customer interview, you probably would should lean on giving a bit more space to the or much more space to the the person you're interviewing. But as you said, when people speak in a very animated way and maybe finish each other's sentences, this is also an indication that you're interested in what the the person is saying. So I I, I don't think, as you very nicely said, that, that there's necessarily a generally better way of being in interaction and communication with others. Um, but again, I mean, on the customer interview side, I have very little experience. So I, I don't really have enough um, experience to actually talk about it. And the main reason also, I wanted to give some space for the experienced people to talk about it. Yeah, that makes sense. Usually he has the best, like he's preparing a question for half an hour and then right. out of nowhere comes this very, very on-point right. questions and I have no clue how to answer it. So usually that's just a lot of depth, 100%. Yeah. That was sort of cool right then, though, because I feel like we got to see Michelle in action a little bit. Yeah. Exactly, was, yeah. Well that, done. Was, that was fantastic. And of course, I interrupted in the middle, too. <laughs> Well, I'm, just, I'm gonna get bad, bad. No, I can, I can, I can definitely see the the power there of the of the interviewing. Uh, yeah, but very good. Yeah, but I said that, but truly, I mean, in uh, I, that was a fantastic example, Michelle. I mean, you, I really, you really made it such a, a safe place for Jonathan to to say anything. Uh, that was felt, that was amazing, and I felt com compelled to 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 talk about my introversion and every like tip quite personal stuff actually i would say but uh just safe yeah. place here jonathan <laughs> <laughs> well let's see we're getting towards the end uh, anything else about interviewing michelle you'd like to that we didn't ask you about we probably should have i i feel like you're uh, borrowing something from my book there with the the reaching for the door question maybe exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know i think you know you know uh, not to talk about Jonathan for too much longer because I can get the sense that that's not uh, his most comfortable place of being in the spotlight about this. Um, but I think ha not having experience in a field can actually be quite helpful in interviewing because as Jan said, you ask the question that really cuts deep on it or in the case of this conversation, right? Like there are probably people listening um, who are learning about jobs to be done. They're not listening because they're already an expert and want to be reminded about how much they're an expert. They're listening because they're learning. And so Jonathan asking questions, he's asking the questions that the listener has themselves, but maybe they yeah. feel embarrassed to ask that maybe Jan or Scott would not think of because they have so much experience in this. Um, and you know, I mean, when I started interviewing, I was, you know, I was working in financial publishing and um, I remember one of the first sets of interviews I did was with people um, who were uh, in the process of retiring or had already retired. And I was not an expert in bonds. I was not an expert in portfolio construction. I was a product person. And so I genuinely did not know a lot of um, things about, about finance. And when I had interviews with people, you know, okay, well, you know, can you ask me why you started taking distributions at, at 71 for, from your retirement account, for example, which is a very US centric kind of question, but it, I was interviewing Americans about it. And, um, and they'd be like, oh, well, that's, that's because it's, you know, legally required at 71 and a half. 
And like, I didn't, I didn't know that, but like a, a, a financial planner would not have asked that question. Right. But then I could say, oh, interesting. So, so what was that like when you finally went to, to, to that process? Like, was there a lot of paperwork involved? Right. But you know, to what we were talking about, the role of expertise in this and communicating your own expertise, um, because I genuinely didn't have that expertise, I, um, I was able to like lean into that a little bit. And I was also sort of in the position where, um, unfortunately, sometimes the people I was interviewing um, were like, who is this young woman? She clearly has no idea what she's talking about. And I realized rather than being offended, I could lean into the fact that they thought I was an idiot. And they would tell me everything. Um, and and I mean, I remember there was actually one one time I was interviewing someone and I think I had almost gone a little too far on the it's not quite playing dumb, but, you know, like I did. Uh, my stance was m- too much that I, that I didn't know what I was talking about. And she was teaching me um, about the concept in general rather than about her experience of the concept. And I remember she said to me at some point, um, what are you stupid or something? You don't understand me. <laughs> And this is on the phone, you know, and, and so there's no video. And, and I remember just like, you know, I was interviewing with somebody else and I threw up goalposts because I was like, I, I was just, you know, I was just like, uh, you know, I, I was like, touchdown, right? Because like, this means she's going to give me everything. And she <laughs> did, right? Because she thought she really had to explain it at this level because I didn't understand it. And it worked marvelously. Um, and so, so, so being a newcomer in a field can be incredible incredibly helpful. Um, but you know, there, there is kind of a, a line to walk there. And I think sometimes I went too far of, of, of making it clear that you, you want to hear about their experience and teach that you want them to teach you about their experience and not about the concept in general. It sounds like the thing you really, uh, you really put your own ego aside for the sake of learning for the greater purpose. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Yeah. It's not about you. It's about them and what you're trying to learn yeah and later on when you're analyzing it then it's okay well what does our what does our company do with this information how does this actually plug into our roadmap like what you know that happens afterwards but during the interview you basically you want them to forget you're a person and you kind of almost want to forget you're a person too Mm -hmm. be a duck exactly (laughs) i love it i love it so much (laughs) well what's next for michelle hansen uh, well, um, I am excited to be taking the book, um, sort of on tour physically. I've done a lot of sort of podcasts about it. So I did a podcast book tour, um, of which this is part of that. Um, but I'm going to, you know, start doing, uh, workshops at conferences and speaking, um, at conferences. Um, I do have a full-time job already, so I'm not going to be doing consulting or, uh, workshops for companies. Um, of course there's a lot of wonderful people who already do that like yourself, Scott. Um, but, but that's what I'm, I'm excited to do. And I just, you know, I just love talking to people about talking to people. So, um, I'm just really excited. I'm going to be, um, in, um, Aarhus, Denmark in, in June, as well as Hamburg, Germany. And then, um, I'll be speaking in Belgium, um, in October, um, doing a workshop, um, as well. And, um, probably more on the calendar in the future, but really excited to just, yeah, get out there and talk to people about talking to people. You're going on tour. It's excellent. Yeah. <laughs> sure it's made. 
But um, <laughs> I did make some for myself, actually, that have rubber ducks on them. <laughs> yeah. And then just to wear, you know, like under my blazer when I'm on stage or whatever. And then for, you know, the happy hour afterwards, I have one that says with a duck on it that says, talk to me about customer interviews. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The possibilities are amazing. Like if you could have people, if you answer a question, you could throw ducks from the stage. I mean, uh, <laughs> you get a duck and you get a duck. Yeah. Play rubber ducky by Ernie <laughs> as your intro music or outro music. I mean, you could, uh, <laughs> it's a lot of fun there. Well, I cannot recommend this book enough. I can uh, deploy empathy available on Amazon. Also, uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you might, you might listen to it or read it. I personally did both. I've, I bought two copies. I recommend that. I think, I think you internalize information slightly differently. I like to have, I like to be able to have the, like the paper. I'm getting back away from Kindle personally. I mean, I love Kindle, but I'm getting where I like the paper book. I like to highlight things. I like to scribble things, learning style or something, but I also like personally to have the audiobook. and with yours, I really enjoyed both. And again, you did a fantastic job um, narrating it. I felt again, I felt like I, I know you. Um, you can follow Michelle on Twitter at MJ Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. Also listen to the Software Social Podcast hosted by Michelle and Colleen Schnettler as they discuss their journeys as indie SaaS entrepreneurs. Their website is softwaresocial.dev. Michelle, is there anything else you'd like to let folks know about? deployempathy.com. You can uh, read the, the introduction to the book. You can also see um, the newsletter um, where I both wrote the whole rough draft um, and I'm sending out um, updates every so often with uh, new uh, talks I'm giving both in person and uh, online. Um, so it's often a video recording, um, but um, you don't have to buy the book. Um, uh, most of the scripts and the tactics and everything are right there in the newsletter. Um, so you could, you could go there if, um, you're not in a position or interest to buy it right now, but that's deployempathy.com. But I recommend buying the book. <laughs> <laughs> Do too. Okay. So what, what, one final question. If you're going to assemble your own conference for product managers or whatever you want in the audience, and as part of the program, you get to show a movie as part of your program. What movie are you going to show and why? Ooh, um, can I show a TV show? Yes. 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 I would probably show an episode of the American version of Whose Line Is It Anyway from the 90s because, uh, Cusper interviews are not a conversation. They're more like acting and um, they're, and they're really like improv where you basically have to go with whatever the other person says. Um, and so adopting that kind of yes and um, improv mindset where you are adding to whatever they say, even if it seems illogical or absurd to you, um, that's how you make an interview work and, and that's how improv works. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yes. And yes. And yes. And, uh, Indy, Indy young. Also, we, we, we had a chat with her that she was big in that. Yes. And as well. Yeah. So, love her books. Oh, we do too. She was, she was wonderful. So yeah. yes. And so if you're a product manager, if you're a marketing innovation or product development or old pro or just, or either new, we highly recommend Michelle's book, deploy empathy. It fills a space in the innovation literature that has been missing for quite a while. In my opinion, and that, friends, concludes today's Product Quest podcast. Please send any comments or ideas for future shows to Product Quest Podcast at 
at gmail.com, and we will see you next time.